and welcome to this week's lecture. And um, I am going to be speaking a little bit uh, on the fast side because uh, we are experiencing strong rains, which most often knocks out electric and which would knock out my Wi-Fi. So forgive me if I uh, tap into my New York skills and talk a little bit on the fast side. So today, today's uh, lecture is titled, Who Dot? Now, modern day issue, let's start with that. We have each met at some point in our lives a pauper with a lot of money, as well as a wealthy man with very little money. Now, I don't mean pauper or wealthy in the poetic sense, but in the literal financial sense. And nevertheless, the pauper may have a lot of money and the wealthy man may have very little money. I want to emphasize as well that I am not referring to the teaching of our sages in Pirkei Avot, chapter 4, Mishnah 1, famous teaching that says, who is rich? He who is happy with his lot. No, I literally mean it from the practical financial perspective for this lecture. I'm not saying God forbid no to this teaching of our sages. Well then, what gives? If I am speaking from a financial perspective, then how can a wealthy man not have a lot of money and a pauper have a lot of money? Seems to be a dichotomy right there. The answer lays in the individual ownership, in the individual's ownership of and relationship with his money. And in order to understand this, we are going to explore the deeper mystical secrets of the teaching of our sages, quoted in the Talmud, in the Darim, and in Ksubot. And it says, there is no pauper but in that, and no rich man but in that. Now, the translation most often used for that is knowledge. And in this teaching of our sages, we are referring to that as a mindset, defining wealthy and poverty as a mindset. However, in Hasidus, that represents the most complicated of the three intellects. The three intellects are Chachma, wisdom, Bina, understanding, and that, which I will now, based on the teachings of Chabad philosophy, will define as recognition and feel. And I'll explain this today. Now, in this lecture, through unearthing the secrets of that, that we will understand the secret of being truly rich, truly wealthy. <laughs> Just share with you people, my mother watches this video and she gives me a lot of agita for swaying back and forth. I just remind myself that. So <laughs> you notice my mind went for a moment. But anyway, I will try, um, besides for your sake, but for simply honoring the Ten Commandments of honor your mother, not to sway. Okay, this lecture is based primarily on a mimer the Rebbe delivered on the 13th day of Tammuz in 1969, exploring the spiritual dimension of the prayer of Moses. That is the beginning of chapter 90 in the book of Psalms, Tfilah Moshe. Now, introduction. Last week, we discussed the mimer that the Rebbe said on Shabbat, the day before he said this mimer, 
And it's based upon the mystical, con mystical concepts of Moses being a wealthy man with no needs, praying, which is all about having needs and asking for God to, to fill the needs. Thus, you have the dichotomy right here in those words, Tfilat le Moshe. Moshe, a wealthy person who has no needs, Tfilah defined only as having needs and asking God to fulfill those needs. Thus, we have the dichotomy of Tfilah le Moshe. Okay, so with that being said, the Rebbe then the next day went and the, by another by another Fabrengian and delivered another mimer in which he built upon the concepts that he already built in the mimer the day previous on Shabbat, which was last week's lecture. So for that reason, I am just going to recap from last week's lecture what is necessary to know for this week's lecture, and we're going to make it sweet and short. Number one, we discussed from the laws of charity that there are three financial categories, according to the Torah. Number one, one who doesn't have his simple needs to live. He has needs, simple needs. Number two, one who has his needs, but is lacking his standards of comfort. And you'll remember that I quoted to you from the Talmud, the person who's used to having a horse to ride on and even have a slave, a servant, running ahead of him to announce his arrival. Number three, one who has vast wealth, which will never serve any need or even comfort lack, but is just an abundance of wealth. We say it as he the, the, the amount of wealth he has, and if he gives away part of that wealth, it will in no way affect his lifestyle. That's how wealthy he is. Thus, that wealth isn't for even the comfort of lifestyle. It's just pure wealth for the sake of wealth. Now, based on these three categories of wealth, power, poor, poverty, we, we also explain how this reflects in the spiritual dimensions of God's light. And let's go over it quickly. One, the category of needs. The finite linear permeating expression light, which is contracted and becomes the soul of life of all creatures. Thus, it's need. Without it, there's no life. Number two, comfort. And again, over here, comfort, we're saying unneeded, but lacking to one's lifestyle. That refers to the infinite circular expression light, which has touched, which was touched by the tzimtzum contraction, but just touched to just elusively encompass all creatures, giving them the comfort of rest, peace, and tranquility. Now, by the word elusively come encompass i just want to share that means it will never truly permeate be digested and internalized by creation it's rather an elusive all encompassing all encompassing experience like the shabbat's effect on us that just gives us a sense of peace rest and inner congruency and then there is the third level which is being that moses well, I'm sorry, the essence light, wealthy, the essence light untouched by contraction and thus unrelated to all at all to creation. Now, that's the second thing we learned. Three categories of wealth and poverty, 
three categories, how this expresses itself in the infinite light of God, which sustains the world. And now the third thing that we learned in last week's uh, lecture is that being that Moses was the faithful shepherd, therefore, regardless of his own wealth with no needs of his own, nevertheless, his flock's needs become his needs. And thus Moses, the wealthy man, can truly experience prayer for needs of his flock, which as their shepherd becomes his own needs. That was the recap on last week's lecture that is necessary for this week's lecture. Now, with that being said, I want to go into another introduction. Redefining the category of needs. Now, in understanding the first two categories of need, which is the permeating light and of lacking, comfort lacking, which is the circular light, let us introduce the mystical teaching upon the verse in Psalms, which says, for a sun and a shield is the Havaya Elohim. Let me just quickly, since I'm going to be using these names, let me quickly just define it for us. Havaya refers to the ineffable tetragrammaton, which is the famous name of God, which we do not know how to pronounce. And today we pronounce it as A-D-O-N-A-Y. Now, that is Havaya. It refers to the infinite light, as we'll soon see. And then there is Elohim, which actually is pronounced E-L-O-H-I-M. I am purposely mispronouncing it because I do not say God's name in vain. And that is what the verse is saying, that a sun and a shield is Havaya Elohim. What is the mystical teaching on what King David is saying? And the mystical teaching is that the name Havaya, which is the category of laugh, lacking, which is the comfort slash lacking, which is the infinite encompassing light, is shielded by the name Elohim, which is the category of needing fulfillment, which is the finite permeating light. By the way, parenthetically speaking, the name Elohim has the same numerical value of Hateva, which is the nature, because it refers to divinity as it has contracted and it fits into the laws of nature, becoming the life force of nature. Now let's look at what the mystical part of this verse is. That means that what? Simply speaking, what's the verse saying? The verse is saying that creation, if it would have been directly from the infinite Havaya, we would have had an infinite creation with infinite creatures, with each creature being infinite. And that's not what God wants. God wanted a finite creation with finite creatures in which each creature is finite. And thus, God placed the Elohim dimension as a shield on the Havaya dimension of the light. And thus, what shines forth through from the Havaya through the Elohim is only a finite ray. And thus, creation is now in a finite sense, with finite creatures, with each, with each creature being finite. What do we learn out of this mystical teaching for our exploration? And the answer is that we've learned out two amazing concepts in the definition 
of the need category. So remember, there's the need category, there is the comfort lacking category, and there's the wealthy category. Now, Havaya is the infinite encompassing light, which is the comfort of lacking, the, from the lacking. That means there is no lacking. It's not a need. It's just a lacking of my usual standards of lifestyle, but it's by no means a necessity. Then Elohim is the needs. It's simple needs. It is the soul of life. With Without it, we don't have light. The simple vivifying and sustenance. Now, what we just learned is that in actuality, it's not Elohim that gives light, life, but rather Havaya shines in a contracted finite ray through Elohim to create, to vivify, and to sustain. Thus, what we're living from is a Havaya level, which is transmitting through the contraction of Elohim. Thus, we have here two very important teachings that we now understand. Number one, our needs are not being fulfilled just by Elohim, but rather by the ray of Havaya into Elohim, the infinite into the finite. And on top of that, we're learning that the infinite ray of Elohim, when it, of Havaya, when it's shining through Elohim, is actually called Elohim and not Havaya. Let me make this clear and practical. So we now have three levels, put away wealthy for a moment. We have three levels in poverty. We have needs, Elohim. We then have two levels in the infinite, comfort. And that is the layer of the infinite encompassing light in itself, which is Havaya. It's the comfort zone. Lacking, if not having it, but by no means is it needs. But then we have the ray of Havaya as it descends and closes itself into Elohim, which now defines for us that it becomes Elohim and not Havaya because it's fulfilling our needs. Why is this important in the buildup of this lecture? Is because what we now understand is, as we'll see later from the process of lower dot, that what really happens is that our needs is actually drawing not from the finite light, but from the infinite light. And we'll see how that plays into the prayer of Moses and what that does for us. Okay, now let's move along with this, okay? So now let's understand this on a more practical level when we talk about soul and life. On a more practical level, let's talk about our soul. Our soul is our source of life. Our soul gives our body life. The difference between a living body and a dead body is simply whether the soul is giving it life or not. Nothing changes in the body, in the biology of the body itself. It's the functioning of the body, which depends upon a life force, which is the soul. Now, in the soul, we have two levels. We have the soul itself, 
which in itself is essence of life. That's what a soul is, life, energy, life. And then we have the ray of the soul, which permeates into every organ of our body, which then transforms our lifeless body into a living body. Now, the body cannot live off the soul itself. The soul itself, that would be like plugging in an appliance into the source of energy rather than into a transformer upon a transformer upon a transformer, which is minimizing the infinite power of energy to finite energy, which will sustain the actual appliance. Thus, the same with the soul. There's the soul itself, and from the soul itself comes a ray of the soul, which becomes the life force of our body. Now, to understand this on a deeper level, the ray of, of, of soul itself, the only reason it can give life, life is only soul, not rays. But because the ray of the soul is a ray of the soul itself in which there is a finite expression of the soul itself, thus the ray of soul can give us life. In other words, if we were somehow to disconnect the ray from having within it the soul itself, the ray would not be able to give life to the body. Thus, again, we have the three dimensions. We have the infinite light, the infinite encompassing light of the soul itself. We have the finite permeating light of the ray of the soul, which really clothes itself within our body. But then we have the part of the essence soul, the part of the infinite life force of the soul itself, which is within the ray, which gives the power of life. Thus, ultimately speaking, you and I are not living off a ray of the soul. We are living off the soul itself within the infinite ray that has the power to give life. Thus, we're not living off Elohim itself. We're living off the Havaya within the Elohim, which now can vivify and sustain a finite creature without blowing its circuits. This becomes now clear. Now let's go a little bit further. And so too it is concerning God, as the Talmud says, just as the soul fills the body, so too does God fill the world. Now what does that mean? So I want to get into a little bit of Hebrew and a little bit of grammar. There are times in our prayers when we talk about God as Chei Olamim. Chei means life, Olamim of the world. But then there are times when we pronounce the word not as Chei, vowel A, called Tzere, but as Chai Olamim, which is life, but with the Ah, vowel called patach. Now, what is the difference in grammar? In the rules of Hebrew grammar, when you have the word chay with the A sound, that tells me that the word chay does not stand alone, but is davuk. It's connected 
to olamim. Thus, we're not talking about life in itself. We're talking about life of the world. And we're talking about God. God is the life of the world. But when we talk about chai olam, olamim, we're not talking about life of the world. We're talking about life itself, which gives to the world. Now, what the difference here is that chai olamim is talking about the finite ray, the permeating light, which is the life of the world. While Chai HaOlamim is talking about the infinite circular encompassing light, which even though it's connected to HaOlamim, as we mentioned previously, because that is what contracts and goes into the Cheha Olamim. So the Chaya Olamim goes into the Cheha Olamim to literally give life. Thus, in spirituality, we also have these three categories within poverty itself, because it's all about needs and lacking. It's not about wealth. And that is, again, Chaya Olamim, Cheha Olamim, and the way Chai goes into the Cheha Olamim. In other words, we have the ray of the soul, as God being the soul of the world, which permeates, vivifies, and sustains, and gives life to the organs and to the body. Then we have the soul itself, life itself, which cannot, it will blow the entire circuitry of every creature if that directly gave life. And then we have the soul itself, which places itself within the ray, the Havayu within Elohim, so that it can sustain and vivify a finite body. These are all the introductions. And with this, now let's go into our lecture. As you know, I always go ahead and um, list the Kabbalistic concepts that we talk about. So I'm going to just give you the three Kabbalistics. We're going to keep it short and sweet, practical, down to earth, and hopefully empowering, inspiring, and transforming to you and I. So the three concepts we're going to talk about is what is that? Number two, the deeper dimension of need lacking versus wealth. And number three, what is Moses' prayer? Okay, let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Number one, what is that? And this is the bulk of this entire lecture. I referred previously to that as the most complicated of the three intellects. Why? Well, for starters, in many teachings, that is already the experience of emotions rather than it being a pure intellect. For example, for all of you out there, the men who put on tefillin, the women who have seen tefillin, you will notice that the head box is the head box and the hand box. Now, the head box, according to Kabbalah, represents the intellect, head box. But interesting enough, even though we only have three intellects, if you look carefully, you'll see there's four boxes pushed together as one box. Now, why is there four boxes if it represents intellects and there's three intellects? The answer is because box number one and number two, and there's an argument according to different people how they set up the tefillin. You have primarily the four different tefillins that you have. You have Rashi's tefillin, Rabbeinu Tam tefillin, Raivet tefillin, Shmusha Rabbe tefillin. But either way, box number one and box number two, however you want to 
look at which one those are. They represent the intellects of wisdom and the intellects of understanding. Now, box number three and four represent love and awe. But one second, love and awe are emotions. What are they doing in the head box? And the answer is we're not talking about as love and awe as pure emotions. Rather, we're talking about the intellect of that. And it already transforms into the primary all-inclusive emotions of love and awe. So that is complicated. It's an intellect, but an emotion. What's going on here? I want to share with you something else that is complicated about that. That in Kabbalah is not always counted as one of the ten emotions. So in the three intellects, so, or what we call the three heads in Kabbalah, we talk about Chabad. Chabad. I'm not talking about as the group and the Hasidus. I'm talking about Chabad as an acronym. Chachma Bina Dat. Wisdom, understanding, loosely translated as knowledge, but as you already heard, we're going to talk about it as recognition and feel and feeling. However, there's other teachings in Kabbalah which refer to the three heads as Kachab. Kachab is the acronym of Keter, supernal crown, Chachma, Bina, and then you have the seven emotions, no dot. I'm going to give you a little bit insight, mystical insight on how that works. The way it works is that dot is actually divided into two. But let me first give it to you in the simpler form. Dot is the center column, right, left, center, wisdom, understanding, dot. Now, dot is the one that has the deepest connection to the inner dimension of the supernal crown. Now, I'm going to throw some more Kabbalah on you. Please, you know me. I'm not going to leave you hanging. You know, no, no levitating. We're going to bring you down to earth. Now, in when we say that the dot connects to the inner dimension of Keter, the inner dimension of Keter is called Atik. Now, there's true two translations to that word Atik. One is ancient, like Yerushalayim Atika, ancient Jerusalem. But there's another translation in the word Atik from the word Netak, which means disconnected, separated. Now, what does that mean to us? We're talking about that the dot connects to Keter, which is disconnected. Thus, when we're looking at Keter from the inner dimension of Keter, being that it's Atik, disconnected, separated, we do not count it. Rather, we count that as the representation of Keter. So we're going to have Chabad and the seven emotions. However, when we talk about the external dimension, the outer dimension of Keter, which that level of Keter is the source and connected to the ten emanations, then we count Keter and we don't count that. Now, again, I'm just looking to make this all practical. In a crown, you have the inner part of the crown, which it's going to flip over here. The inner part is the lower part, which is the outer part in Kabbalah. But the inner part is made to fit the size of the head. The outer part 
can be as big as you want. I mean, he's got to have a strong neck, but as big as you want. Thus, the inner side of the crown in Kabbalah spirituality is the external dimension of the crown, which has to fit and be connected to the head. While the external wealth of the crown is disconnected so from the head itself. Thus, when we do the internal dimension of the crown, the attic, we can't count it because it's not part of the actual system. It's disconnected. It's not part of the life force. While when we talk about the external part of the crown, which fits the head, feeds the head, makes the head king, that is counted. Thus, when we do count Keter, we don't count that. When we don't count Keter, we count that. Now, to make this a little more complicated, the in the higher dot itself is two categories. The higher dot, dot Elyon, is connected to the inner dimension of the crown, attic, disconnected, while the lower dot is connected to the external dimension of the crown. Let's now connect the dots before we go further, and you'll see how everything really tangibly makes sense. So, Moses is wealthy. Moses is called higher dot. We now know that wealthy, as we explained, is that which is attic, disconnected. It's the essence light that neither was transformed nor even touched by contraction and thus can serve no purpose, not in need fulfillment and not in comfort filling of the lacking. It is wealth for the sake of wealth, which is untouchable and completely disconnected. Now, the lower level of that, that tachton, connects to the external level of the crown, which is not wealth, which is not essence light, but rather it is encompassing infinite light, which we already just explained, is connected and goes into the permeating, I'm sorry, the, the yes, the impermeating light, the Havaya goes into the Elohim, the external level of, of the supernal crown goes into the emanations, the lower level of that is what brings the level of Havaya into Elohim to vivify the ten emanations which become the form and likeness of creation and the life force, the needs, soul of creation. Thus, we now are having a better picture here. And what we learn from here, what we're going to go and then build upon in understanding that is that that itself has this very rich levels. We spoke about the higher dot being wealth. We spoke about the lower, it's what connects us with the essence light. Then we spoke about the lower dot, which is the Havaya, which is the comfort of anything that's lacking, which is elusive, encompassing, but not digestible to fulfill needs. And then we have the Ten Emanations, which are the actual fulfillments of needs to be alive and everything we need to physically, practically live. 
Now let's go back to the question. So what is dot? I understand that dot is a very powerful connecting tool. Lower dot connecting to the infinite light and higher dot connecting to the essence light. But what is that? So I want to make it clear now. Wisdom and understanding are the intellects that bring us concepts that are taught to us from the outside. We acquire wisdom and understanding from the outside through teachers who teach us orally or by studying their written teachings or by contemplating and extrapolating that which is around us, viewing and really absorbing what is nature, what is science, seeing how things work, how they interact, cause and effect. All of that comes from the outside to the inside. On the other hand, that is not about bringing anything from the outside into the inside. Rather, that is very distinct in its revealing and deeply connecting with the inside. Again, I don't want to get kumbaya here. Inside, let's talk about this practical. Now, because of the difference between wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, we have two distinct differences between wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Number one. The experience of wisdom and understanding is never really ours that we own. Rather, it is always something that was given to us from the outside. And even while now we have it, it is ours and we don't truly own it. So ultimately, it's not truly ours. It's, so to speak, borrowed. Now, the experience of that is all about truly owning to the point of absolute oneness and unity until we are one with the experience. It is ours because it has truly become us. Now, again, I know I'm using words that could be translated as kumbaya. Trust me, Chabad doesn't kumbaya. We're going to get here. Just come along with me. Another distinction, which is the outcome of distinction number one, is as follows. That in which any resolution built upon wisdom and understanding is not concrete, is instable, and is breakable. While a resolution built upon that is concrete, stable, and unbreakable. Because it is ours, it has become us. And thus, we have the terminology in, in the Judaism in which we call someone a takif bedaitoi. Takif means strong. And what this means is we're talking about someone who is steadfast in his mindset. And as you can see, we use the word takif, strong and steady, not with wisdom or understanding, but takif bidaato. It's in the intellectual of that is the only place where takif can really exist because it is me, not something that was given to me. It comes from the inside out, and thus the resolution and commitment to this is absolute.
Okay, and here I'm going to share with you two interesting sites, insights into that. One, I've already shared this in a previous lecture, but here I want to get a little bit more tangible, practical. We really need to leave this lecture understanding the secret of that, which is the secret of becoming wealthy. So in secular writings, I found a book called Blink, and there's a link to it, written by the researcher Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a couple of books. Um, uh, maybe you've heard of some, um, The Tipping Point, um, uh, David and Goliath, uh, Outliers. The one I'm talking about is his book, Link, uh, uh, the book Blink, and, and I find him to be an amazing researcher, and I really appreciate his style of writing. Be it as it may, I want to just share with you that in that book, I believe he describes some very accurate traits about the realm of that. Now, the subtitle to this book is Thinking Without Thinking. The concept here is that there is a different level of thinking working here. And I am very tempted, I, not him in his book, I am very tempted to connect this to emotional intelligence acquired through diligent dedication and total identification with, with one's field of expertise in which it truly becomes a life passion rather than just an expertise. So now, normally when we say emotional intelligence, we're talking about maturity. I am not talking about emotional intelligence on the level of emotional in, in, in maturity as much as I'm talking about emotional intelligence within the intellectual, I'm going to use the word intellectual, expertise that we have in our field of expertise which now is not just a field of expertise as, yeah, I do that for a, a living, but rather it has come become my passion, almost to the point where that which Aristotle once said to a student who questioned him, and he said, does a mathematician become a triangle? It's almost as we're talking about the level of emotional intelligence where such an answer is unacceptable. We're not talking about an expertise. We're talking about a life's becoming, a life's calling, a life's oneness, passion, not an expertise in a field. Obviously, it demands an expertise in the field, and we'll talk about it. It demands, it, it demands huge experience. We'll talk about what that demands. But I just want to share. Now, I want to share with you the opening story in that book. So the opening story in the book is about Getty Kuros, which was a statue brought to the J. Paul Getty Museum in California. It was thought by many experts to be legitimate. And when others first looked at it, their initial responses were skeptical. Gradually, the argument for the legitimacy of the Kuros provenance fell apart. The letters tracing his history turned out to be fakes. Refer, re referencing postal codes and bank accounts that did not exist until after the letters were supposedly written. The point being that while professionals tested and researched validating its being authentic, others without research, 
thinking without thinking, without research, just at the first look, blink, knew with unshakable certainty that it was a fake. Now, in the book, I wanted to share with you, when one such person of this blink experts was asked how she knew that it was a fake, I want to share with you her answer. When I looked at it, my stomach turned and I prayed that the museum hasn't already purchased it. Hmm. No intellectual intelligence to this response because she was coming from a place of that and not from a place of wisdom and understanding. She was coming from that which was in her that she totally owned and not from an external learned borrowed place outside of her. So I think that that book Blink and just what I shared with you about Blink gives us a little insight to this dot thinking without thinking a, a, a relationship so deep that defies the rationale. Of course, it was built originally on rationale and, and, and intellect, but now it's come to such a point of recognition and feeling, which is not logical. Now I want to tell you a personal story. Once after my grandmother, Gitta Lipschitz of blessed memory, left a yechidut, a private audience that she had with the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, the previous Rebbe told his secretary, Rabbi Liel Yachel Simpson of blessed memory, about my grandmother. She is a bardas. Now I'm going to use the word bilis because the quote is bardas, but bar is masculine, balistas. Now, being that Rabbi Simpson happened to also be the family rabbi in Borapak, he taught my father for the, his family taught my father for the bar mitzvah. I remember him. I used to daven in that shul. So there was a relationship there. So our family actually found out what the previous Rebbe said about our grandmother. I mean, we had no way of knowing. It was after my grandmother left that the previous Rebbe told it to Rabbi Simpson. Rabbi Simpson, being close to our family, wanted the children. He didn't tell my grandmother. He wanted the children to know what the previous Rebbe said about their mother. Now, we refer to a person as a chacham, a wise one. And that talks about wisdom, chachma. We call a person a maven, a maven, an understanding one, which refers to the intellect of understanding, Bina. And yet the name that the previous Rebbe referred to my grandmother was concerning the intellect of Dat, a bar Dat. Now, the reason is that while my grandmother held her own in the world of wisdom and understanding, nevertheless, she excelled in Dat. What does that mean? So I'm going to tell you a little bit of personal history. My grandmother, as a young wife and mother, came to foreign America, having six young children at the time, later she had a seventh, was suddenly cast into a situation of her husband being in a hospital for an entire year with a health situation from which he would never fully recover. Now, forcing her to become the primary breadwinner, and even the primary caretaker, not only of her children, but of her husband. I've witnessed this, where she was battling with her husband, my grandfather of blessed memory. Did you take your medicine? Didn't you take your medicine? Literally, she became the primary caretaker as an outcome of that health situation that my grandfather went through. Now, 
all this as an orthodox, non-compromising religious woman in a very non-orthodox, challenging America in the 1940s. Now, the dot element referred to here was about an unbreakable faith, commitment, and guiding light in how to act, live, survive, bring up her children to continue in their mother's certainty, marrying off her children, and seeing grandchildren still walking in the same unshakable path she has trod for them. That demands that. Let's see. My grandmother wasn't faced with the luxurious debates of today's orthodoxy. Today's orthodoxy has the luxury of debates of what we call humras. I don't eat that kosher. I eat this kosher. Luxuries, my friends. Luxuries for the orthodox jewelry. But rather, she was faced with life decisions in which mistakes, uncertainty, and any swaying of commitment was to bring either certain physical poverty, she was the primary breadwinner, or spiritual poverty, if she compromised her Shabbat or kosher or anything, upon her family. Now, no grandmother was not a Talmudic scholar, nor a Talmudic maven, but she was an absolute bar, balas dot. Navigating and surviving the turbulent American waters as a Jewish conceptually single mom wouldn't depend on her externally given wisdom or understanding, but on her internal, deeply owned dot as a Jewish mother, guardian of her offspring. Now, dot is described in the teachings of Hasidus as I told you before, hakara and hargasha. This means a recognition and a feeling deeply owned, even inexplicable, certainty of thinking without thinking. It is the outcome of total focus in which our entirety of our mind and thought completely engage with the item concept expertise. It is the outcome of a personalization of passion and life calling rather than an abstract, detached cop topic course of study. And it is not something that we pursue from any, for any external rewards, but to truly live out a deepest inner calling, a soul calling that will always call us back to itself. The recognition and feeling is not the outcome of logic and reasoning in as much as the logic and reasoning now becomes the outcome of the recognition and feeling. And thus, we find in the Talmud, and I quote, Rav, and I have a link who he was and in the in times of the Talmud, Rav remained silent but did not retreat from his resolved opinion. Now, the reason being that Rav, even though he could not defend his position in the moment, deeply knew the validity of this, the, the opinion on a dot level, on a blink level, on a thinking without thinking level. Now let's move on to the second of the three Kabbalistic concepts, the deeper dimension of need lacking versus wealth. Okay. I'm going to share with you another perspective. 
The wealthy one is called the mashpia, the giver, while the poor one is called the receiver. And what this ultimately means, that even when the poor one has, he has it as a receiver. And thus, even while he has, he is ultimately a poor one. And this will manifest itself in that what he has isn't unshakable. It isn't certain and owned by him to absolutely be his. Simply speaking, quote unquote, from the teaching, it could be otherwise. And if it could be otherwise, even though it isn't otherwise, it isn't truly so. Thus, even while he's wealthy in the moment, in an, an, an acquisition of much, Nevertheless, the fact that it could be otherwise mean that even while it is, it doesn't truly define the experience and the situation. Now, let's go further with this. The wealthy one, on the other hand, even when he is in an environment and position in which it seems that he does not have, nevertheless, he ultimately and deeply, in no uncertain or shakable terms, has because he is wealthy allow me to explain this an example because it seems like i'm like what am i saying i want to talk financially and yet i'm saying the one that has even when he has it isn't really his it's borrowed it was given to him and thus he doesn't really have and the one who's wealthy even when he's in an experience in an environment where he doesn't have but being that he is wealthy he is the giver thus he truly does have what does that mean I'm going to give you a simple, practical explanation, which is built upon why the Rebbe said this teaching, which was about the arrest and the liberation of his Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak of Lubavitch, in Soviet Union in the year 1927. And here I want to share with you. The Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, wrote his memoirs of the arrest and the liberation and then it was translated later on, many years later. And in the English translation, the translator titled the book, not the arrest and liberation or the memoirs. He actually gave it a title, which I love. He called it a prince in prison. And why do I love that title? Because it captures the entire memoirs in these four words. A prince in prison prison now let me share with you just just a couple of examples okay so that you can see what i'm saying here okay one time when the torture inquis inquisitor also i want to just i'm sorry i interrupt myself we don't understand what we're talking about here because we have American prisons in which prisoners have rights and comforts and can even riot and can even fight and, and, and sue. And this is Russia. <laughs> this is Stalin's Russia. When you went into prison, you had no rights and no one would know if you disappeared, were killed forever. There was no, oh yeah, I'll show you. And now listen to what the previous Rebbe, no radical, very bardat. Listen to three stories. At one point, the person who was torturing and then questioning, he actually 
all of a sudden just lashed out at the previous Rebbe and said, we will teach you a lesson. To which the Rebbe calmly responded, yes, but who, who? Amazing. Next example. The Rebbe who spoke and wrote a perfect Russian, and the authorities knew this. They had writings from him in his handwriting in Russian. And nevertheless, the Rebbe refused to speak or respond but in Yiddish. Remember, this isn't a miracle of free world. This is Russia, and this is Stalin's Russia. You didn't make demands. It was beaten out of you. And a third and final story. In response to the Rebbe refusing to respond or sign on the false accusations against him, because that's the way Russia worked. They wrote accusations and they had you sign it and then we got a confession, so we're going to execute. But the previous Rebbe refused to do that. So the guy took out a gun, put it on the table and said to the previous Rebbe, this toy opened up many mouths. And the previous Rebbe, again, in the calmest disposition, says to him, that toy works on people who have two gods and one world, not on people who have one god and two worlds. Now, I'm telling you these three stories because what they're showing us is that even though the previous Rebbe was in prison, that was serious. And in what would be the furthest environment and experience of a prince in which the Rebbe was physically beaten and tortured. And yet, just to these three stories, I read the entire memoirs, trust me, there's many more this came from. But just from these three stories, one can see who was the prince and the wealthy one on the deepest level of self versus the Russians who worked and could have any moment been found guilty of, of not doing a good job and killed. So who was the prince and the wealthy and who was the absolute slave and truly poor in the deepest sense of self? Now, this is the power of that in which your wealth is not just what you have, but who you are even in a moment when it seems that you do not have. For that defines the innermost essence of who you are. And with this, let us now understand the third and final concept. What was the prayer of wealthy Moses as a faithful shepherd for the need of his flock? Needs that as a true shepherd became his own needs. Now, what we understand is that being that Moses was true wealth of higher dot, in which he didn't just have wealth, but was wealth from the inside out, regardless of the environment and situation. Thus, even as Moses allowed for the flock's needs to become his own needs, he was but a prince in prison a wealthy man from the deepest level of self, clothing himself truthfully in the needs of his flock. But nevertheless, even though the needs of his flock was prison, he was, is, and always would be from the inside out, a wealthy person. Now, which leads to our final understanding. Moses' prayer 
was a wealthy man's prayer. Now, why are we calling it a wealthy man's prayer if the point here is that as a shepherd of a flock, his flock's needs became his needs, and yet we're calling him wealthy? Here's the insight. The insight is, and what this means is that when Moses prayed for the needs of his flock to be fulfilled, he empowered the flock to see and know that as children of God with the essence light, within the essence of their soul, they were wealthy from the depth of self, regardless of being in an experience and environment of need in the present moment. And now in closing, becoming wealthy. In closing, becoming wealthy isn't built upon borrowed acquisitions from the outside, which even when are ours, are not owned by us to truly be ours. This acquisition of wealth leaves us with a bunch of toys which are not ours and not who we truly are. And thus we are always in pauper mentality over them. I'm going to reread that. And thus we are always in pauper mentality over all the wealth of toys that we have. Becoming wealthy is a dot transformation in truly owning who we are, regardless of our external environment or experience, from which we then transform our very environment and experience to truly reflect and become part and parcel with who we are, truly wealthy children of God and flock of Moses. Thank you. Shabbat shalom.